the problematic element of it is that you need eyeballs on screens. And it doesn't matter if it's lies or addiction or making girls feel bad about themselves. It doesn't matter what it is. They don't care. And so what I saw was that like kind of the values I asked people about, you know, what are the main values of the tech industry? Also, what are your like main values? And then looked at the alignment between those two things. And very rarely did they align. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you're listening to the Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, our guest is social psychologist Katie Cook, who is the author of The Psychology of Silicon Valley, Ethical Threats, and Emotional Unintelligence in the Tech Industry. And so as you might expect, that's exactly what we talk about here. That takes us on a tour exploring ideas like empathy, capitalism, and the concept of progress. In a lot of ways, the key premise of Katie's work, and therefore this conversation, focuses on the lack of the humanities, and to that extent, humanistic values, inside of tech companies, which then ultimately impacts all of us due to the monopoly that such companies have on our attention and the stream of information that guides so much of our lives. On that note, I will take no more of your attention myself, and we can just go ahead and jump into this. So everyone, please welcome to the Feedback Loop, Dr. Katie Cook. What was your motivation as a starting point to really just get into psychology? What made you wanna go do a PhD? That's a great question. I actually did two masters before I did my PhD and one was in psychology. It was a counseling degree. I took a class in order to graduate college and it was a social psychology class. It was three weeks long and I had no idea how no one had told me how awesome psychology was. I don't know how I turned 22 and just didn't know that. And on a whim, I decided to, that was in January, I applied for grad school to be like a therapist. And by September, I was the youngest person in my grad school class, which was like a union kind of depth psychology program in Santa Barbara, which was amazing. And that took me into therapy for a little while. And then from there, I missed the academic part. The practical was super cool but I missed kind of the bigger picture, putting pieces of a puzzle together in society. And so I went to UCL in, in London and I did a master's called Issues in Modern Culture, which looked at the kind of last hundred years, kind of modernism, postmodernist cultures and how we deal with hard things as a society, mostly through like art and literature and I mean, later TV and, and books and all the kind of things that we produce, like our outputs. Um, and from there, I did my PhD. I stayed at UCL. I loved it there. And I studied the psychology of progress in their psychoanalysis unit there. What does the psychology of progress entail? That feels like a very broad uh, topic. So the way I break down kind of any psychological kind of coming to terms with what's going on, um, whether that's personal or as a society, is to look at kind of the three steps of its, what I call it, like its DNA. So you kind of, you recognize what's going on, like you determine where something is coming from. 
Um, and basically that's just awareness, right? You become aware of a problem. And so whether that's social or individual or familial or in you know, a romantic relationship or friendship or whatever it is, you become aware of this problem. Um, you start working around the narrative of what it means and digging into it and researching it maybe, or talking about it. And you create, you figure out the story of what's going on there, right? Whether that's inherited trauma or um, someone not getting their needs met or not being aware of something that's going on within yourself. There's all these different things that can cause us to kind of stand in our own way, either as a society or as a person. Um, and then you figure out what's actionable and what you can do to change. And a lot of times I think we kind of like to miss the middle step because that's where all the hard work usually lies, right? Kind of the wrestling with problems and, and trying things and failing. We don't like to fail, obviously, but um, we like to jump straight into action, which you see a lot in tech too, right? There's a problem and then there's a solution and there's not always a lot of kind of ruminating in between. And there's there's a quote that's attributed to Einstein. I'm not sure if it actually is. You never know what you find on the internet these days. But um, there's a quote that I love that could be Einstein that says, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend 55 minutes asking questions mm. and like five minutes figuring out a solution. And I think we do less and less of that is kind of what I've come to take away from progress and, and why progress is seems to be getting sometimes harder in some some ways in the world. Yeah, that's uh, isn't that actually the original, was it Google or Facebook's motto, move fast and break things? Yeah, Facebook, yeah. Yeah, and, I'm, <laughs> and it seems, you know, that we are definitely in a situation where we've done an hour's worth of progress and not a lot of questions. And as a result, we've kind of created this maladaptive environment uh both physical and and mental in terms of like the digital space um was that something that you noticed then in grad school that made you start thinking about this book or was this something that you found yourself kind of uh moving more towards once you because you live in san francisco right i am in southern california i'm in southern san Diego. california Yes, and but, I'm about to be a nomad for a year, so I'm about to have um, no address. But exciting. Yes, right well, now. what was it then that that made you think I need to look at Silicon Valley and what they're doing? You know, it was kind of separate, and then it kind of ended up coming together. So my PhD started in 2011, I think, and I was done by 2015 or 16, 15, and I founded an organization while I was there, a nonprofit. Um, which is the first company I've ever started called the Center for Technology Awareness. And it was basically just an awareness and education based nonprofit. And I did research and I would put it on the website and I would do educational programs for schools like middle schools and high schools and stuff with a, a friend from grad school. Uh, we did it together. And that was kind of my starting interest was, was around there because all these people were looking at the mental health impacts of tech, but there wasn't a lot else about other impacts. There was like some jobs research. Um, there was a little bit of kind of like how that might affect the economy at some point, but there wasn't a lot of awareness of the problems that you see now. And so we broke it down into like environmental impacts and jobs, the economy, uh, mental health, obviously, and relationships, community, trust, information, all that kind of stuff. And this was way before Cambridge Analytica and 
most of the time people would just kind of look at you like, what are you talking about? And now it makes a lot more sense in retrospect, I think to a lot of people, but that was where I started to get interested. And it was kind of separately to my PhD, but just thinking more about kind of the, the general progress of the world and of human society and of how freaking, I don't know if we're allowed to swear, how big of a impact or how many impacts um, this, this small, relatively small industry was going to have on a very big world. And then central to those impacts, you, I guess your thesis then is a lot of these impacts are exacerbated or worsened, right? Because of this psycho psychological profile that exists um, predominantly in this very small niche group of creators. What is uh, What are some of these, some of the aspects of their ethics or emotional intelligence that you think are driving these impacts? Okay, first of all, that's the best summary anyone's ever done of my book, including me. So <laughs> I I'll take cannot it. wait to memorize that. Um, that was my elevator pitch. Thank you. I could have used that like three years ago. So I found, and I interviewed like 251 or two people. I forget what my final count was. And what I found was that everyone was lovely. Everyone was super nice, except for one person. So 250 out of 251 were very, very nice. Most of them... Um, most of them were men. Most of them were within a certain age range. Most of them were white or Asian. And so my, my interview pool, and I did some research on this ended up being pretty reflective of the demographics of the tech industry and of, especially of big companies who kind of report their, um, who their employees are and who works for them. And I started thinking about that as I was writing and kind of what that homogeny meant to the industry and what that meant to the problems and kind of, especially like the ethical problems that that creates. And I started thinking about kind of what was missing within that bubble of Silicon Valley. Because when you start looking outside of it, I talked to, you know, tech companies in Europe and tech companies in Asia and Africa, and they, they were very markedly different in a lot of ways. So not only kind of the diversity within those companies um, was better or more inclusive, but the mentality was a lot more kind of embedded in the community, aware of the social problems, and just didn't seem as kind of much of a homogenous small little bubble as when I went to these particularly big companies in the Valley. So it got me thinking what was missing and what I came up with both through my own research and the research of lots and lots of, of other people um, who I quote throughout the book is that there, there's not a lot of humanities mm. education um, in terms of the background. So in terms of diversity, we also kind of have to think about not just the diversity that you can kind of see, but also things that you can't, right? So um, economic back, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, educational backgrounds, things like that. And those tended to be pretty homogenous as well. So a lot of founders, especially, um, came from pretty privileged places. Um, there is a, there's a, I, I wish I had done a number of like, I wish I had asked where people went to school and stuff. Cause that would have been an interesting kind of sub study, but, um, there were a lot of Harvard graduates, um, especially around the kind of 25 to 35 male, white male mark um, that I talked to. And it just became clear that there wasn't a huge awareness of things like philosophy, like psychology, like social sciences, um, history 
even, you know, anything that kind of could have given any kind of foresight or, or inkling into what could go wrong rather than just money, progress, growth, um, acquisitions, you know, it, it ended up looking a lot like the culture, not as cool maybe, but like a lot like the culture of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And there's a book by Karen Karen Ho called Liquidated that I read about what was what Wall Street was like before the crash. And it there were a lot of things that really mirrored it, not kind of the alpha maleness, but the the focus on money and as that capital and that as kind of a prime value that overran everything else. Do you, do you think that that is an issue specifically with, um, I guess, Silicon Valley and like the tech type people, or does that maybe come down to capitalism a little bit and its incentives? Because as you're saying that, one of the things I'm hearing when you're talking about profits and stuff, I'm thinking of like the legal obligation that corporations have to their shareholders to make them money. And it's like, no matter how uh, humanistic your intentions might be, if you hire people who are asking questions and slowing down profits, you're technically like, I think you're, I think you might actually be breaking the law by like not supporting your shareholders. But I mean, that seems like a capitalistic issue, not so much maybe like um, a demographical issue. Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. And that actually led me to what I'm about to go do, which is write my second book, which is on the psychology of America. Mm. So that will be a year of traveling and and interviews to kind of look at the mental health of the country and relate that back to our you know values, our history, our um, culture, our identity, our you know rugged individualism crap, and and kind of what matters to us and and how why we're failing so much and so miserably in so many ways like mental health and connection and community and all these things um safety kind of basic Mm. feeling basically safe in the future which most people don't um whether that's young people who need jobs or older people who don't know how they're ever gonna retire um but yeah i think it is very much a systems problem right it's a western hyper capitalistic mentality that bleeds into other industry i mean not other industries but but any industry really that has that doesn't have guardrails, especially like this one, right? Or that has lots of loopholes like Wall Street did. Um, if it's not bound by something that is purposely ethical, the way medicine is, or you know, law has a lot of rules. I don't know if it's always ethical, but there's a lot of guardrails in place at least. And there aren't any because tech's so new. Like there just aren't any. And so you can get away with whatever you want and you can convince yourself that it's right if you don't have a good grounding in ethics and in empathy and in kind of relationships and what matters to keep a society humming. And a society can't hum and can't keep going when it's increasingly unequal. And so to answer your question, I think, no, it's not just tech, absolutely not. I think tech is, you know, much like a, an orange president, like a symptom of something else that's gone terribly, terribly wrong, right? Our, our values have gone out of whack. Our um, financial incentives are, are way out of, out of kilter and, and people are suffering because of that. And so tech is obviously the biggest kind of boldest, baddest example of that, but you can find it lots of other places. 
Yeah, I think you're really onto something there with the unregulated aspect because my bachelor's degree was in computer science and software engineering. So I remember specifically one of my ethics classes, um, ethics of computer science or something. Um, but we were talking about a, a, a specific case where a programmer had created a um, program for a radiation therapy uh machine in a hospital and the idea was that you know people going through cancer treatment etc would be exposed to a certain amount of radiation depending on what was inputted into this machine and the programmer uh made a mistake basically where instead of when you delete if you delete the numbers in the field with a the delete key instead of like highlighting it it kept the previous numbers there so if somebody entered 30 if somebody came in after that, deleted it, and typed 30, it would do 3,030 units of radiation instead of 30 units of radiation. And it was killing people. And the thing that we were talking about is like people who build bridges and buildings and all these things have to go through all these licenses and certifications and are held accountable. But the programmer wouldn't be held accountable for that. Nobody's going to hold that programmer accountable because you could argue it's an honest mistake or whatever, but there's also no regulatory body to keep them in check. Right. So there's, I don't know, like there, as you're saying, the unregulated aspect, there is, I feel like that uh, aspect right now, allowing technology to maybe do far more damage than maybe a typical industry might. Yeah, for sure. And you saw that, I mean, you can think about it with, you know, automated vehicles or um, even software that is aimed at helping people with their mental health. Like when, where's the line for that? Where do we start saying, well, is that ethical to have a bot help you feel better? Like maybe it's better than nothing, but if you're, you know, suicidal, is that going to do it? Like, should you be going to technology or should you have a qualified person in front of you? And yeah, I agree. It's a really, it's a super messy line. And I don't know, I don't know exactly what the answer is, except I mean, the obvious one is policy, mm. right? If you did have the answer, you would be very well off or very so, famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So famous. Uh, Not though, like with, even for the policy thing, like if you don't have policymakers who understand the stuff, which obviously we, we really don't, like if you've ever watched a Senate hearing, like it's embarrassing um, and comic, comic gold. But um there's just this huge knowledge gap. And these kids are so, I say kids, these people um, in this industry are so smart in a way that, you know, I was messing around with my AirPods before we started recording, not able to work them, that most people, even smart people with lots of graduate degrees don't understand. You say kids and you're, you're jokingly there, but I mean, the age is, does skew quite young, right? And a lot of these companies. Yeah. Do you, do you remember through your research an average age? Yeah, I, I have it somewhere in a graph. I think I did for like a talk at one point. Um, Microsoft is the oldest. I think the average age there is like 31 or two, I want to say. And then it goes down from there. So all the average ages at places like Facebook, Google, all the kind of big ones, Twitter are all quite young. So yeah, there is research on it. It's really fascinating to look at. And then, you know, 
It's yeah. I mean, how much I, this is what I think. Like, I mean, I tried to be a therapist when I was 25. That's when I went to grad school and, and got my first internship and tried to be a therapist. And I was too young to do it. And I had to stop for a while and went off to London, came back, like I'll get my licensure and start doing individual counseling at some point, like in the future, now that I'm like pushing 40. But I, I had to recognize that I wasn't in a position to be responsible for people in that setting. And I don't think in a lot of industries that don't, you know, force you to sit down and have supervision and, and self-awareness is kind of built into the practice that that's something that people even think about or consider. Like, is it, is it cool to put a new graduate who's 22 in a place to, you know, potentially crash cars or overdose people with radiation? And I'm not saying those people were, were young who did that, but you know, it, it's a good question to ask, like who, where's the supervision in these, in these places that can cause so much harm. And then what does harm look like too? Like, is it just physical? I think the, like, if you look at interviews with Mark Zuckerberg, he's like, well, we're not causing harm. No one's getting hurt, which obviously also a lie, but, um, harm has lots of different meanings, right? You can harm someone by robbing them of the truth or, um, of withholding information from them. You can harm people in a lot of different ways by dividing their community. Like there's lots of different um, definitions by philosophers that you can argue are potentially very valid on the internet these days. And it ripples outward too, right? Like if you find that your technology is making people more depressed, depression is going to lead to, you know, probably make more stress in your life, which is going to lead to a weaker immune system. You're going to probably be more impulsive and more pleasure seeking as a way to counteract the pain. And like, that's going to maybe turn into addiction or reckless behavior with other people. Like there's a long, there's a lot of echoes of harm that can propagate outward. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like if you, if they had you there when they started their company, right. Knowing about neurochemicals in the brain like that, and not just the dopamine loop that gets people coming back, which obviously helps the business model, that would be potentially considered and built into the platform maybe but um you know it just wasn't for most of these it's it's really profit driven and that's that's unfortunate it's advertising really like i mean if you look at kind of what it comes down to in the basic kind of the the problem the problematic element of it is that you need eyeballs on screens and it doesn't matter if it's lies or addiction or making girls feel bad about themselves it doesn't matter what it is they don't care well, and you mentioned demographics earlier in terms of who or who are the, the people attracted to to these jobs and to Silicon Valley and to kind of leading this paradigm. But what about the personality profile? What about the psychological makeup in terms of like, uh, you know, I think there's a higher prevalence of people on the autism spectrum. Um, I'm sure there's more analytical minds and like as you said in the title of the book emotional unintelligence so what are some of the like more mental traits that you you saw in, in this culture yeah it's um and there's lots of exceptions to what i'm about to say i should caveat with that um but yeah exactly what you said there are a lot of very rational analytical left brain individuals in tech and they're brilliant they're absolutely brilliant and they do things that i could never do and they don't have skills that I think are really essential for technology to be made in a purposeful, kind of meaningful, healthy, socially conscious way. So not a lot of empathy as a whole with the group that I interviewed. Um, and this 
does break down somewhat when it comes to different jobs within the industry. So this is more talking about engineers, founders, the, more the technical side, less so sales, PR, comms, that kind of thing. So I'm mostly talking about the, the kind of engineering element of the industry now and the people who work there. Um, a lot of introverted types, and I'm an introvert, so I say that with the greatest respect. So yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of puzzle loving. People love to solve puzzles, especially big problems. And I think that's really, that's an interesting point to, to think about. And we can talk about that later, like what big problems get solved? How do you solve them? What problems come up later down the road? But there was this, this is one thing I, one story I found really interesting was in the sixties when the programming industry was really starting to boom and they needed lots and lots of computer programmers. They didn't know who would be best for the job. And so they hired these two psychologists um, who studied lots and lots of engineers in the industry and determined that computer programmers should like puzzles and not like people. And those were the two things that they told, you know, IBM to go look for. And it, that kind of existed in job descriptions in one way or another, or in kind of the hiring process and, and the mentality um, of the industry for a long time. And it still kind of does, you know, I know so many people who are in tech, who I adore friends on the spectrum and, you know, they, they're brilliant and they lack the skills that I think would make technology a lot more ethical, or they don't have the complementary skills within the company, you know, um, being kind of sought out. And if they do have an ethical, it's a bigger company and they have an ethical board, it's kind of, you know, well, I mean, you saw what happened with, with Facebook's research recently, like they just, they, they only kind of listen when it does support the bottom line and the stakeholders. So there is just a fundamental kind of lack of, of human centered knowledge, I think, and emotional knowledge at the heart of the industry, which is a shame. Yeah. Do you think this is something that is, I don't want to say inevitable because like you said, there's policies and systematic ways that we can change things. Um, and I don't know about your research or experience with studies on like gender differences and stuff, but there is some evidence that I think solidly suggests that men gravitate towards spatial things and, and engineering in that regard um, often. Women tend to gravitate more towards social things in the same way, in a, in a less bi uh, gender binary kind of way. I think that same thing happens with certain personality types. And so I could imagine just people who, by virtue of their biology and their proclivities, do tend towards this field. And that's just kind of how it is. And we have to accept that. Um, I mean, do you, do you think that that's something we can fix with the systematic and policy side of things? Or is this maybe something that is an inevitable aspect of just human nature? I think it's probably a multifaceted answer and approach mm -hmm. that you need, right? Like you can do, and I do it, you do training all day long on empathy and empathetic leadership and communication, um, social skills. You can do that all day and it does work a little bit. It edges people in the right direction. Right. In the same way you can train, you can train anything. Um, but if you're not naturally gifted at something, it'll probably never be your strong suit. Like most of the people I train are never going to go be therapists 
right? Or or have like a very um, like a sales job or something that's very human one on one um, related. So in a way, I think you kind of play to your strengths, right? Like it's it's great that people have these strengths, and I think they need to be grown and supported and in the right environment that is that could be a beautiful ethical thing right if you have program managers and project managers and ceos who understand and chief people officers who understand how to direct the trajectory of the company the goals of the company make sure all of these things are crystal clear such that the technology itself matches what you actually are wanting it to do for society or for your customers and what you're not wanting it to do too, kind of thinking ahead. And, and some people are really good at this too. Um, my ex is a, hold on, I'm going to get it wrong. Network security guy. And he writes books on um, like hacking essentially. And they're really good about thinking about all the ways that a problem that someone could get in somewhere and then a problem could arise. They're good about finding, you know, loopholes to things. And so that kind of mentality is really, I think, whether it's a technical person or not, kind of what you need to stop these problems before you start. Because even if you're solving big problems, the ones that come up along the way are, you know, could be even worse than the thing that you're trying to solve. Yeah, I feel like you want to pair one of each of those people, one of the people who see all the like ways the system works and then one person who thinks all about the people. Totally. Why not? Like have a buddy system. Do yeah. it. <laughs> so so we're here and, you know, the, there's a lot of men from well-off backgrounds who tend to be highly analytical and less empathetical. There's probably some more power-centric focused people in this demographic as well. Mm-hmm. And they're creating this technology. So then from your experience and you know, as you said in the beginning, there's a ton of ways that these impacts ripple out. What are some of the key impacts, I guess, that you have seen that are a direct result of of this certain type of psychological profile or the, you know, what's happening in Silicon Valley? So I think the lack of trust online is one of them. Mm-hmm. Like the effect on communities really concerns me. That's probably the one that's at the forefront of my mind the most as I like start this next bit of research. And the lack of I don't know if it's emphasis or awareness or just caring about connection between people mm. and and the breakdown of that that you see because of how little thought has gone into particularly social platforms. I think that probably concerns me the most. And that's what I see the most is that if you don't have a great appreciation, I think, for you know, social connection and kind of the the subtleties and the niceties and the the small empathies and the mirroring and the really subtle things that make human connection, eye contact, seeing someone's face, name, like being present, all of those things, um, even a back and forth of a conversation. Like if you don't appreciate that that's how trust gets made and built and communities and friendships and relationships get built and that that's what society functions on at a very basic level because we wouldn't exist we're a social species and we exist because we're able to collaborate and if we can't collaborate i mean you can see kind of the effects of that now right we're not able to collaborate very well in the us um, right now at all (laughs) 
and I'm not understatement, that entirely but, yeah. on tech, but it, it's not helping. So I think that part bothers me probably the most. Well, and to that point, I mean, that leads to another really good question, I guess. I kind of asked it before, but I'll kind of reiterate it. There is, seems to be a natural proclivity here towards outrage, you know, towards tribalism, towards kind of, um, you know, oxytocin comes in and it's the cuddle hormone and love hormone, everyone says, but also it is a thing that makes us more xenophobic because as we increase our in-group, we increase our out-group. Mm-hmm. And if certainly technology is a vehicle that is probably exacerbating things. So despite maybe Facebook's most recent whistleblowing um, and the choices they've made there, if an algorithm is meant to show you things that people do most and the things that we do most are get outraged and be xenophobic, is that the tech's fault that we're outraged and xenophobic all the time? Or is that a mirror on the human condition? You don't, it's technology is neutral essentially at the end of the day, right? It's, it's a box and gears and wires and it's not human, at least not yet. And you can't blame it for anything. Um, and I don't think blame is a particularly useful concept anyway, but when you think about solving problems, I think more about, or fixing systems, I think more about fixing people or organizations or, you know, larger systems or societies. And that means you're working with people and you're fixing people and you're fixing to the wrong word. My therapist would hate that I'm saying that, (laughs) um, that you're working to, you know, progress and, and heal people because if people don't have, let's just, let's take a very basic example. So if someone grows up in a house where there's not a lot of focus on emotions, very analytical, you go to college, you get your degree, you get a job. No one talks about, you know, how you feel about it. That's just the way it is. You go, you get your job, you do, you do your thing. You're on the straight and narrow and you're doing your job and you don't then have this appreciation, no matter how you're feeling for what happens down the road, the thing that you're creating, how that makes people feel because you've never, that's never been part of your life. Right. And so that's not a blame. It's not a case of blaming someone. That's just, if we don't appreciate the people who are making these technologies and where they come from and how they feel and, or not feel and how they behave and think and what motivates them and their coping mechanisms and all these different things, the myths they believe we're not going to have a good appreciation for how the products get to where they are. So you don't really care about the products, you care about the people who make them. And so that was why this topic was so interesting to me because no one else had looked at, at least in depth, any more than kind of an article at the psychology of the industry. And so to see it firsthand and to see kind of, you know, the kindness, but also the lack of empathy just right in your face um, was really startling. And it really, it took me aback. It was worse than I thought. Um, the sexism was worse than I thought. The women that I talked to had stories that I wish I could unhear. Um, everything was worse than I thought. But when we talk about, I guess, you know, the the people creating this technology, there's a lot of animosity that we have towards them because we're like, you're ripping apart society. But as I'm hearing you talk and I'm trying to, you know, put on my empathetic hat here, I can't help but think the kid the person who's creating that technology was the kid who was maybe neglected at home 20, 30 years ago. And maybe what we need to figure out a way to do is like show empathy and love and kindness to the people making this stuff. So they feel 
safer in a way that they want to help people rather than hurt people or exploit them. I mean, does that is that an idea that you think is important is to like see that the people doing this are also people who are hurting? Hundred mm percent. -hmm. Yeah, I have a course that I've made. It's like an e-learning that's emotional intelligence. It's called hacking emotional intelligence because it's aimed specifically at the tech industry. And it's made to kind of introduce these topics in a really kind of accessible way, because if you've never seen them before, you're not gonna, you know, be able to sit down and talk about how you feel with someone necessarily right away, because you might not know. And so it, it dials it back a few notches really to kind of the, the basics. And I think you have to have, like you said, just a lot of empathy. And it's the same with I mean, not the same, but it's similar with say a bully, right? Like you have to show empathy, I think, and, and love and unconditional kind of positive regard for the people who are hurting and therefore hurting others. Otherwise, if you don't, that person's just going to keep rolling on and hurting other people. And you're just then putting out fires for the kids who are, are hurt as a result. So if you go to the source of the technology, you might find some places where there's a little bit of room to, to help people and therefore then to help kind of products in the industry. And what I noticed when I was there spending time there, I was flying back mostly between um, London and San Francisco, was that when people would get burnt out or super stressed or not know necessarily how to handle their emotions, in tech, they would have a physical reaction. Something physical would go wrong. Um, and so it was a little bit of a, um, you know, different reaction than, than a lot of people would be able to kind of notice, but you, you, they almost kind of burn out or get so stressed or whatever until they break because they just don't have necessarily that ability to, to get in touch with what's going on inside them in an emotional way. Mm -hmm. And you said, for instance, your ex worked in tech and you're between London and San Francisco, which obviously tons of tech. So what was the reaction of peers and the people you were maybe in interviewing when they kind of realized what you were doing and some of the thoughts that you were uncovering? Like, did they kind of have a, a denial at first? Were they open to it? Did they say, yes, I see it too? I think what's interesting is I think almost everyone in tech kind of sees the social problems that I was really interested in. And so the purpose of the book, so it's divided into three sections. The first looks at the psychology of the industry. And the second section looks at kind of the impact, like the major impacts as I see them that are kind of going on because of tech, right? So things like, or that are being driven by tech. So economic employment, um, job changes or employment changes because of, you know, skill gaps and things like that mental health, relationships, community, all this stuff, um, misinformation. And they all saw that. They got that. It was like everyone was pretty much on the same page. But I think what is kind of maybe lacking or like not being put together is maybe their kind of small role in it. So tech people tend to be a lot more detail-oriented, don't always see kind of the big picture and, and systems and how pieces of a larger system, I think, work together. Um, which is why, you know, you, you can't, you know, appreciate, I think how all the things that make a society run and hum and move forward, if you don't see your piece in the, 
the kind of trajectory of that. And so they didn't see always necessarily the connection and, and the part they played. So you would hear them talk about these problems and then in the same breath or the next minute say, oh, you know, like if this law passes and we have to, you know, hire gig workers as employees, we have a loop, we have a solution to that already in place. So don't worry, like we were not worried about that. And so to answer your question, like, I don't think they were ever, I only had a couple people call me and ask me to um, delete our interviews. And that was more because they were worried about getting in trouble with work um, and their companies, even though they were anonymous interviews. So um, most people know, most people were pretty supportive and saw kind of the issues as they were going on. Yeah, it feels like as you're saying that, then that it's more, it is more of like a policy thing. Cause they, it sounds like they were saying, you know, until the government starts doing things, we, we just feel helpless or like we're going to wash our hands or maybe decisions are out of our control. Yeah. And I think if they do for employees that I talked to that, you know, had quit or walked away or just not been able to handle working for in the environment, whether it was the culture or kind of the, the products and the morals and the, the stuff that was coming out of their company, um, those people had kind of hit their kind of moral or ethical breaking point, I think. And they, they left to go to a different company that wouldn't jar, I think, with their personal values as much. And so what I saw was that like kind of the values, I asked people about, you know, what are the main values of the tech industry? Also, what are your like main values? And then looked at the alignment between those two things and very rarely did they align. Yeah. What about uh, the economic aspect you touched on before the disparity and stuff? How does that play into this or how does this, uh, how is this impacted? So I should probably start by saying I'm not an economist, Fair. <laughs> <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, but what you see at a very, you know, very basic way in tech, um, I think the Forbes hundred richest or something people came out the other day and they're all CEOs and, and tech entrepreneurs. Um, and you get these, you know, crazy valuations that for, you know, for a lot of people don't make sense for companies that have never made a profit. Um, and this money almost doesn't seem seem real, right? And the the money that you can get to start a company that you know from a, a VC that you know will probably fail, it's it's just it's not reflective of real life and real people's experience. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, the economy that kind of exists within Silicon Valley is very very different than what most people recognize as a kind of normal functioning economy. And so in that way, it seems to kind of exist A, in this bubble and B, not really be based in reality. And so you see people getting very, very rich, you know, being acquired for millions, tens of millions of dollars with a company that's never had a customer. And how does that happen? Like, is that, is that right? Is that normal? Is that good? Like, I don't have the answers for that, but it's just, it's an interesting way to assign value when most people don't look at work and value and money in that way. And so I think it's reshaped kind of our notion of what, um, you know, investing and um, loss and risk and all these kind of things that we thought we knew ish yeah. um, don't exist in the same way 
in, right, it's like a hyper capitalism yeah it's in an unreal kind of way yeah so putting on your your counselor hat using your educational experience and all the stuff that you discovered through the process of writing this book what are some of the things like in a perfect world that you would want to see put forth as recommendations or policies that could maybe change some of the key paradigms that you think are exacerbating the problems? So I would dial it way back and start with education, um, like primary school education. Mm. So from primary school on, I would educate all kids in empathy, communication, social skills, collaboration, um, emotions in general. I would make mental health more of a priority and hopefully kind of start, you know, further back in the pipeline, I guess, in that way. Um, I think we also, what I'm working on now is kind of this idea of you know, whether or not the values that we are living by and operating our society by right now are sustainable. First of all, what are those? Mm -hmm. And are they working for people? Are they making people's lives better? And they're making a couple people's lives better, but my intuition is that by and large, like it's not working for most people. Um, and like, do we live in the most individualistic country in the world um, by quite a bit actually. And I think the effect that has, it's rooted in history, right? Kind of this rugged individualism, America conquering, whatever. Um, does that, can you function a society, can a society function like that? And I don't think it can long-term. I think we have to be more collaborative. I think we have to be more empathetic. And so empathy is what I focus on as much as I can when I work with corporations, when I coach um, executive teams or individuals or whatever. And that's how I go about making companies better. I would like to see that done at a grander scale across education, across you know, adult education, um, companies in, in all kinds of you know, nonprofits, medicine, they already kind of get it, but just to have it as a value mm -hmm. in the U S yeah. um, and have that kind of underpin a more conscious kind of capitalism, I think would be a good place to start. I love it. So we're obviously going to link to your book and the show notes here, but is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners about maybe that you would like them to check out um, anything you're working on these days that you'd like to share uh, anything at all? So um, the book is free. We should say that first. The ebook is um, open access, which was really important to me to make it like available as much as possible. So you can get that um, if you like ebooks for free. Um, right now I'm working, I'm going to continue my consulting and kind of strategy work as I'm on the road, but I am embarking next month on a road trip across all 50 states um, to do research for the next book, which will tentatively be called The States of the Nation. And if you would like to follow it, um, there is an Instagram, which I realize is owned by Facebook, um, <laughs> called The States of the Nation, where you can see me try to build a cabinet. All my friends are getting married and having babies, and I am over here trying to figure out how to build a cabinet. So if that interests you, um, I'll be doing some carpentry for another month and then starting interviews when I hit the road with people just talking about their lives and how they're doing and um, 
what is, you know, burdening them, how they're suffering, what's going well, all that kind of stuff. Perfect. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and for having this conversation with me. Thanks, Stephen. It was really fun.